you have your Bibles, would you open them with me uh, to the book of James? The book of James. James chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some Bibles on the back table. We also um, uh, have the, the uh, passage printed for you in the insert found in your bulletin. Uh, for those of you who are visiting this morning, we are returning to a study that we began uh, many months ago, <clears throat> this letter written by the half-brother of, of Jesus uh, that guides young believers in the first century uh, concerning what a life of following Jesus looks like, what a life of faith looks like. And this is our 14th if you can believe it, our 14th look at this brief letter, and we are fast approaching its conclusion this morning. Those of you who have been around may remember, though probably not, uh, but you may remember that I said several weeks ago that we weren't going to return to this book this year, uh, but here we are, December 30th, returning to this book. Uh, having finished our Advent series on Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, I wrestled with what to do, whether we ought to come back to James, whether we ought to do something different for a while before we finish this letter, and I felt that this is where we needed to be. Maybe it's because the Christmas season stirs up so much materialism in us. Maybe it's because we are reminded of how much we have been given, how much we have. Maybe we've been reminded of how much we don't have or how much we wish we had. For whatever reason, this is where the Lord has returned us to this morning, picking up the study that we set aside at the end of November. And so we're going to begin the new year once again thinking about money, about our wealth, and it's not something that I orchestrated, but something that I think the Lord has put before us. What does God want us to do with it? What is it for? Listen and follow along as I read. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. There are just two admonitions 
that I want us to hear from this passage this morning. Let's jump right in. The first one is this. Guard your hearts against gospelless wealth. Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters, against gospelless wealth. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you are coming off a, a pretty lean Christmas. There just hasn't been as much there as there has been in years past. If that describes you, I don't want at all to minimize the frustration and the sadness that you are experiencing this morning at your circumstances. But here's the reality. 10.9% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Just under 50% of the world population lives on less than $5.50 a day. That means that globally, the vast majority of us, all of us in this room, all of us Americans are either in the upper middle or the high income class when we are compared to the rest of the world. Even as, even Americans that are classified as poor in our country and by our government would be middle income people globally. And I say this, and lots, of, lots more statistics could be rattled off, but I say this simply because I don't want you to hear those first four words, come now you rich, and check yourself, check yourself out of this passage as if this passage has nothing to do with you. It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of comparison. And in a very real sense, all of us, every one of us, myself included in this room, are materially wealthy. We are rich. Again, that's not to say that your financial hardships are nothing. But it is to say that there is something here this morning for all of us. As we've looked at before, this is obviously a letter written in the first century to a unique group of people in a particular context. So who is James addressing? Before we get to us, who is James specifically addressing here? You'll remember last time we were in this letter back in November, he was addressing businessmen and businesswomen who were going all about traveling around. Today I'll go here, tomorrow I'll go here, I'll sell this, I'll sell that. And the Lord says, be careful. You're not in control of your lives. Well, now he turns from businessmen, James does, to landowners, wealthy first century landowners. This is a small group of individuals that increasingly controlled much of ancient Galilee. They had accumulated vast amounts of wealth as they had gobbled up these tracts of land, and they had done it on the backs of laborers that they had hired. Now, one of the big questions about this passage as we come to James 5 is, are these rich that James is addressing, are they believers or are they unbelievers? 
We've dealt with this before in our study. On the one hand, he's writing this letter to the church, right? It's something that would be read in the church to people who at least claim to have a profession of faith, who at least claim to follow Jesus. So why would he address a group that's not in the church? But on the other hand, he doesn't address them as brothers, does he? He calls them just the rich. In verse 7, he'll bring up the language of family, of brotherhood. And his language is it's so strong here, isn't it? It's so condemning that it's led many people to believe that, no, these are unbelievers that he is speaking to, and therefore he is encouraging the church as he rebukes unbelievers. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't for sure know the answer to whether James in this paragraph is addressing believers in Jesus or unbelievers. But at the end of the day, as it relates to the application of the passage for our lives, I don't think that it is crucial. For this reason, because we all need to guard our hearts against gospel-less wealth. And the issue is not the wealth itself. The issue is the heart behind the wealth. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says this, and we hear, we hear echoes of Jesus' words. We hear echo of, of James' brother's words. Do not lay up yourself, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where need... But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. And so let me be very clear. The Bible does not say that it is a sin to be wealthy. There are plenty of figures who honored God and had much. Genesis 13 says Abraham was not just rich, he was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. The Lord pronounced to Solomon he would give him both wisdom and riches. Job, the one who feared God, the one who has this tragic story, was blameless and upright. He's described in Job's 1.3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, many servants. This man was the greatest people, greatest of all the people of the east. And so the warning here in James chapter 5, church, is not make sure that you are poor. God calls you to poverty. That's not what the passage is saying. Rather, James is saying, the Lord is saying, make certain that you are using and managing your wealth in such a way that the gospel, the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus, is magnified. Because that's the context we're in, in the new covenant. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. See, wealth is from God, but wealth has a purpose. He has given wealth to you for a reason. And so there's a particular kind of wealth that James is speaking against here in James chapter 5. Gospelless wealth. 
Wealth with no gospel at all. Wealth that disregards the Lord, that disregards the Lord's priorities. And he describes it in two ways. Gospel is wealth is characterized by two things. Number one, it's wealth that is luxuriously self-indulgent. It's luxuriously self-indulgent. That's what it says in verse 5. In other words, the focus of my wealth is on my comfort. It's on my security. The focus is on my pleasure. It's this view of wealth that's it's incredibly short-sighted. It believes the lie that this is all there is. So we better gobble it up. We better hoard it away because all of my stuff, the bottom line of my bank account is what I need for life and fulfillment. And that's a lie. And so, he, it responds here in the first century, this kind of luxurious, self-indulgent wealth, it responds in the first century with the hoarding of grain, with the accumulation of fine clothes, with the tucking away of, of precious jewels and, and, and fine metals. Well, that's not us. I don't know who's storing rice in their closet, but not me. No, for today, hey, today for us, it's driving that car of status, right? For us, it's having that savings account or that 401k that is just swollen to the point of obesity because I need to know it's there or else I'm going to be unsettled. I always think, I brought this up before, I always think of the self-storage phenomenon of our day and age. Now, I know there are good reasons. I've used storage compartments at times when I've moved and so forth. There are unique circumstances when you need them. But the very concept is just weird to me. We build buildings in order to pay someone to house the stuff that won't fit in our house. And a lot of people live that way because they bought the lie. First Timothy 6 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich, Paul says to Timothy, fall into temptation into a snare, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. I suspect every one of us in this room has, has prayed that the Lord would give us more. I've prayed it. Give us more. We need more breathing room. Things are just a bit too tight. But have, have you ever prayed for less? Lord, don't give me so much. That's the prayer we find in Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And here's the key. Here's, here's the wisdom in such a request. I love this prayer. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal 
and profane the name of my God. Now there is someone who knows the natural state of his heart. A heart bent towards luxurious self-indulgence. A heart bent towards self-gratification, self-sufficiency, self-preservation. There is someone who understands that our hearts can so easily idolize wealth. And not just because of its pleasures, the things it can bring us, but because of the security it can bring us. Proverbs 10, 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Their safety and their security in riches isn't there, but it's an illusion at the end of the day. It's a false security that too many people lean on. Proverbs 11, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. That's a famous quote. Guard your heart against gospelless wealth. Wealth that hoards that which is fleeting. Wealth that expects from it something that it can't ultimately give you. So that's the first way he describes wealth, but there's another. Not just luxurious self-indulgence, but wealth, gospelless wealth is wealth that focuses on self, yes, and in doing so, ignores, and let's take it a step further, tramples on other people. That's what we find here in James chapter 5. God's heart has always been for the vulnerable, for the poor. We've looked at it before in this very letter. And it's the cries of them that the Lord hears here. Their cries for justice, for fairness. They are people that are powerless to change how they are being treated. Indeed, these wealthy landowners had hired these laborers and were having their way with them because they were powerless to change their circumstances. I couldn't help but think of that guy that was in the news a couple years back, Martin Scarelli. Remember that name? Back in 2015, the media labeled him as the most hated man in America because he raised the price of this anti-malarial, anti-parasitic cancer drug that everyone needed from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill. And it was motivated by profit. It was motivated with a disregard for people. Here in the first century, they didn't have the judicial system like we do to jump in to make things right. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, James says to the rich. He does not resist you. Now, the language here in James chapter 5, it seems to be judicial language. 
Whether there was real murdering going on, whether there was real death going on, we don't know for sure. It seems to be there's like a legal death that is happening. There's a legal murder that is happening, a condemnation to stay in your place of oppression because these wealthy landowners, with all that wealth, comes the power, and they had control of their courts. And in their greed, in their short-sightedness, in their idolatry, they ignored God's righteous law for mercy and for grace for those who are vulnerable, for those who are poor, for those who are in need. And James says he won't have it. And all of this leads to this language, this Old Testament prophetic language, weep and howl because of what's coming. That's the language of of covenant curses. Because I have heard their cries, you who have oppressed the poor and the vulnerable. I've heard their cries. And who am I? Who does James says he is? He is the Lord of hosts. That description of the Lord is no mistake. He is the God of heavenly armies who is not coming to play around. He's coming in judgment. He's coming in wrath over the disregard for people. And so the call of this passage to the rich is to repent. Flee the coming judgment from the Lord of hosts. Repent of your oppression. Repent of your luxurious self-indulgency. But the encouragement to the oppressed, to all those in the church who were part of that laboring class, who had been oppressed and had been stuck under the thumb of these landowners, to them, this is, our God hears us. He will vindicate us. He will make all things right. And brothers and sisters, I think we need both applications in our lives. Because I think we find ourselves in both places, seeing the wicked prosper and saying, Lord, do something. And then being in a situation ourselves where we need to check our hearts and our lives. Guard your hearts against gospelless wealth. But don't just be on guard, be proactive. And this is where I want to close with, for just a moment, with the second admonition worship the Lord with your wealth. Worship the Lord with your wealth. Don't just play defense, guarding your heart, but be offensive. Worship the Lord with your wealth. See, this passage is set almost entirely in the negative, but if we were to think rightly about what we have, then this is the biblical encouragement that flows from all of this negative, negative rebuke of the rich. Worship the Lord with your wealth. Show His significance in the way that you spend your money. The handling of our finances is worship. It's one of the reasons why we give as part of our worship. We could do that in a myriad of ways. We could set up a PayPal account. You wouldn't have to worry about it. But we give as part of our worship. Because how we handle our finances is worship. 
and particularly, we haven't addressed this yet, particularly in these last days, the end of verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days, this is a big theological concept that we could unpack for a long time. Paul uses it. The writer of the Hebrews uses it. James obviously uses it. What is the last days? The last days is the time between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and his coming again in glory to make all things right. We are in the last days. It's the period of the new covenant. What James is saying to the first century church, and here we are centuries after that church, but we're still in the same epoch, the last days, is that these days are crucial. The end is coming. The gospel needs to go. Jesus needs to be magnified. So make sure that you're using your money in a way that does just that. As you begin to apply God's Word, I have some questions for you. Questions to ask yourself. Some of these I've asked you before in different contexts. How have I declared through my spending that He is greater than all that I have? Does my checkbook reflect a focus on myself or on others? How much do I trust in His provision? To what extent do I share His heart of love for those who are in need? Have I victimized others in order to gain for myself? A heart of gratitude and humility and contentment, a life of simplicity and generosity, that is what God calls us to as we honor Him with our wealth. Where have my wants disguised themselves as my needs? What spending corners can I cut for the sake of the gospel advancing? Am I spending life, excuse me, am I spending like life is at peace? We've talked about this one before. Life is at peace or like there is a war going on. In other words, am I spending like these are the days, these are not the last days. we got plenty of days. Or am I spending like these are the last days? I could go on and on. Wisdom uses wealth to worship. To worship the one who emptied himself of all of his glory for us. Paul reminded the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now this is talking more than material wealth, although Jesus when he was on earth was not materially wealthy. He was poor. But it's because of Jesus's voluntary condescension because of his life poured out, that we can pour ourselves out. Brothers and sisters, wealth is from him. It's a good gift. Remember that. Remember that by guarding against its perversion of your life. 
and hold it loosely. Give it freely that you might honor the one who gave it all. This was Paul's parting charge to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. May God give us the grace. May God give us the faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this admonition, this encouragement from your servant James. Holy Spirit, would you take these words that I've spoken, these words that the Holy Spirit has preserved, and would you use them in the lives of your people, that we might indeed loosen our grip on the stuff of earth, and increasingly fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Oh, Father, hear us now, for we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.